Hello and welcome back to How To Medieval. I am Ari. And I'm Matt. And this is the How To, where two guys show you how to do it between the two of them. Welcome back, Matt. Looking forward to today. Yeah, always looking forward to taping these shows. So today I want to talk about the way people justify the material culture that they bring into their impression and bring up some of the ones that may not be the best way to convince yourself that you should be allowed to have this thing. And <laughs> well, we have a lot of people who get into this and they want something and it's easy to justify in a number of different, very, you know, not so great ways that they should be allowed to use it, even if it's not historical or not authentic or things like that. So that's what I want to talk about today is bad justifications and maybe ways to avoid them. All right. So what would you call, like, I have my idea of what a justification is. What would you call a justification in this context? I would, in this context, I would definitely call a justification is a way to look at your what you're portraying, your your persona, if that's what your group calls it, uh, like the SCA calls it, or just the, the what your portrayal is, your interpretation. And the justification is how do you outfit and supply your portrayal and, and, and what methods do you use to make those decisions to outfit and supply your portrayal? And justification should really be a neutral term, even though I don't. Sometimes I hear the word justification and I'm like, oh, well, now we're in for it. Because if you have to justify something, it's almost like you're defending why you have it, even if you know deep down or, you know, other people will challenge whether or not you're allowed to. And there are certain things that we do, especially when you have emerging research that do require justification. I think there is a real difference between justifying a piece of material culture and having, say, a reason or some sort of supporting evidence for a justification. And we tend to get more justifications the less evidence we have for that particular item. Exactly. I mean, so there's justifying what you have, and then there's making excuses for what you have. And those two, that's a sliding scale. And that line gets really blurry really quick sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, I see it sort of as there's like three distinct ways in which you should be able to personally with your own justification and you know with your own integrity bring something into your kit and that's when you have some sort of primary source and when you have a primary source that's usually when you you know, don't hear any justifications anymore because you don't need to justify it you have clear and outstanding evidence that it's there then you have sort of your tier 2 where you have some indication that what you're portraying probably was portrayed that way but it requires a couple logical steps from what we actually have available to us as material culture and what you're portraying. So there's a little bit of conjecture involved. So that tier two actually busts up really closely with what we call experimental archaeology. Yep. Where we have this idea that they had something and used it a certain way, but we don't know 100% for sure. So then we... We take that object, we actually try to use it as we think they would have to see if it makes sense and if it works. Sometimes it works, 
sometimes it's a catastrophic failure, but yeah. So yeah, but sometimes, you know, so it's that, that this could work. It might work. There's some evidence that it did work, but we don't have concrete evidence that that is like the second, second tier. And it's really close to that experimental archaeology. True. Yeah. That's a good point. And experimental archaeology, just to make sure that anyone unfamiliar with the term is different from if they had it, they would have used it. Experimental archaeology isn't how do you make certain things fit into a medieval context. It's how do you take gaps in our knowledge that we have a lot of information encircling it and maybe fill that in in a way that we know will always be guesswork, but at least it's sort of substantiated guesswork based off of, look, we have all of these peripheral indications that it might have been done this way. And when we actually physically do it that way, it works. That's a huge indicator that maybe we are on the right track, because if we go and we can't make it work the way that these peripheral sources say that it should, then maybe we're missing something. Uh, Maybe we need to develop a bit more of that skill set that has been lost in time. But it's not if we have something, then they would have used it, too. And that's part of what comes into that tier three, which I think is it's one of those justifications I like to call extreme extrapolation is that it's almost entirely conjecture and it's supported only by the most tenuous amount of historical research to the point where it, if it was any less his, historically adjacent, it would just be fantasy. And that's where I think we get the most justification is when people sort of have a want for it to be a certain way, but they don't have any of the details to back it up. So they inject them. Yeah, exactly. That That's a good, great way of looking at it. Uh, uh, to shorten up that phrase, which you used before, the, the, you know, it's the flip side of the, if they had it, they would have used it. It's, we know they had it. How did they use it? Oh, I like the way you said that. Yeah. So it's, um, that's what the experimental archaeology is. And it, it isn't doing that third step, which is seeing something and saying, how do I make, how do I make this thing fit in with, with, my portrayal it's we know they had these things does it work with my portrayal or doesn't it so no this is good so now we kind of have an idea of what justification is and where we find it in that sliding scale of excuses versus reasons as to why we would bring something into our living history kit or impression or our persona or our portrayal that that blanket idea of what are we bringing from the past into our own practice. And now I think we can get into what are some of these justifications that we see that we know are they're not good. And when a lot of more experienced people will, will hear them and they'll cringe. And maybe if we have a chance to talk about them today, you as the new reenactor don't stumble over that and you can avoid poor research and present a better impression, because I know that's what we all want in the end. So before we really get into this, Ari and I need to make a little disclaimer here and say, we this is not about judging you for your reasons to want to have something and try to make it work. Ari and I have been doing this long enough where, where we have spent probably thousands of dollars on things that either weren't right, quite right, or we didn't really need. So we want to help you set up this mind, uh, mindset of going into this, looking at it in a particular way, to help 
hopefully help you save some money and, and get the stuff, the really good stuff that, that you really do need and, and eventually do want. Now, if you've got some cool stuff that you just love and there's no way that you, you're ever going to get rid of it, don't worry about that. That's perfectly fine. We've all got cool things like that. I've got a really cool bicocket that is, has stars embroidered all over it. And I love this bicocket. I think it's amazing. It is a total fantasy, you know, based in, based in reality fantasy hat. So it, it makes me kind of look like a wizard. <laughs> but so we all do these things and it's about knowing when to use these things, what situation to use these things. So like things like the SCA, they really are very lax on the, on the rules of these. And you don't have to do any of these things if you don't want to. You can really use whatever you want as long as it meets that threshold of looking like it's something from, you know, pre 17th century. True. And if you remember way back in, I believe episode two, we kind of broke down the different ways in which people practice medieval type activities from the, from actual proper fantasy LARP and Renfair all the way up to the most extreme and stifling of authenticity slavery. So we have plenty of spaces that we can use things that aren't historically authentic. However, in a situation where you want your impression to be internally coherent and culturally cohesive and historically authentic, some of these reasons to bring things into your kit are genuinely less useful if you want to achieve that final historical goal. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like we talked about in the beginning, one of the biggest justifications for doing something, as we talked about before, is the lack of sources. And there's good ways to bring in a piece of material culture or some sort of research or skill that is poorly evidenced, and there are bad ways to do it. And the and the bad way to do it is to sort of give up and go, well, there aren't enough sources. We only have one or two. And so these, you know, I can use it this way because there's nothing to the contrary that says that I shouldn't. And it sort of puts the onus on the rest of the community to, to disprove a negative, which is very frustrating for people who are trying to. And it's just in general, you can't really disprove a negative and it's a very frustrating place to have a conversation or a dialogue with someone from that sort of mindset. I think, and I think a lot of people get a little defensive when they, when, when they're at that level, because you, you'll say something a lot of times, you know, you'll question the validity of the use of what they're, or of the items. And they a lot of times respond with, you know, well, you can't prove they didn't have it. And, and that, that, that can set up a, a friction and, you know, put you uh, butting heads with, with one another because like, like Ari said, now it's, it's up to you. It's almost a challenge to you to disprove it. And most times when people ever do that to me, I, I say, do what you want, man. It's, it's, it's your game and, and go the other way. But because well, really yeah. engaging on that level can be just super frustrating. It is incredibly frustrating. And the, I think what happens here is that there's a misunderstanding as to what the purpose of asking for a source is. And it's not, I've never asked someone for a source or a reference for something because I'm challenging them 
on whether or not they should be allowed to because I'm not I'm not authenticity king. Like, sure, if you are running a group, you might set the authenticity standards and have some sort of oversight on what you allow into your group. But, but when it comes to just talking to other people interested in living history, I come to these conversations as a as a learner because everyone has something to offer. I don't care how new you are to this. There are sources I haven't read that you have access to. And there are thoughts about history that I have haven't had time to dwell on that you very well may have come up with. So everyone has something to offer. And usually what happens is if you're do, if you're doing an impression that is something someone else doesn't recognize we're all really interested in history. Clearly, that's why we're doing this. 99% of the time, you're being asked for a source because someone is very eager to learn what you know. And we all understand that going back to the source is the best way to learn. I can have a conversation with you about the history that you've developed, but then I can also go home and read the source that you got it from and develop a similar competency of the information that you have. And also, sometimes there are issues that become reenactor isms over time, and you won't know that they exist because you haven't been in the culture long enough to have seen them crop up and go away like fads. And so if someone asks for a source, sometimes that's a gentle reminder that you know, there might be things that you're doing wrong and don't know yet, but it's much more polite to discuss the origins of your decisions than to tell you, hey, I've seen people do this wrong five times before and I, you're doing it wrong now. So, hey, dummy, dummy, go read your book and do your homework. That's really not. And I know people take it that way. And that's the hard part is that it can feel like that. I don't think I've ever met someone who genuinely meant it that way because those kind of people get weeded out pretty quick. And going back to what you said about the, the sometimes having just two little sources, I mean, I know that frustration so, so very well. I'm actually working on a project right now where the only source is a single find or, or pieces of a single find from a single excavation in Poland. Um, I'm, I'm working on, I saw, and I, and I, I actually, I did something. We'll get into this later, further down the list, but I'm actually sort of violating one of our rules here. I saw a different reenactor make something. It's a leather hood. And I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was amazing. And he actually posted a source for his interpretation. And I really dug into it. And basically in uh, Poland, this town called Kaliz, Poland, they found in a dig two fragments of the edges of a cowl of a hood with lira pipe that are made out of leather. and Personally, I always thought that leather hoods were a thing of fantasy. I thought they were made up, you know, something that, that Hollywood had designed, costume designers had designed. So I thought it was amazing to actually find pieces of the actual items. So I've been digging and digging and digging, trying to find out more information about this. And really, there isn't. All there is is these two fragments. All the write-up of it is in Poland. All of the museums in Poland are closed right now because of COVID. <laughs> So ah, we can't we can't find any more information about them. So I've extrapolated what information I can and have gone forward and, and trying to make my own version of this. But I think when it when you get to this level of wanting to recreate these really, you know, isolated items 
We need to be honest in the lack of information about them. And, you know, be perfectly honest saying, this is my 100% interpretation off of the information that I've gotten. I could be wrong. I think the man who made the, the hood that I'm, I'm, I took as the jumping off point, I think he realizes too, he could, he could be wrong. He actually told me that he, he very rarely makes copies of existing items, uses those as inspiration and goes from there to using his knowledge of what he knows of the medieval, um, you know, 14th century period to make items that are similar, but also, you know, could have been contemporary to this other item. So I, I think if you're going the isolated source or a few sources, you just need to be honest and say, you know, I've only got a couple of sources. This could be a one-off. These could have been very rare. I don't know if somebody of my status that I'm portraying would have had this item or not, but I thought it was an interesting and an interesting research project. That's good because it sort of goes back to what we were talking about when we were referring to experimental archaeology. You, When you say I have a very limited source, so I'm just going to make it this way because I feel like it and no one can tell me it's wrong, you flip that on its head and do what you guys have done, it's not in isolation that you have made this hood. It's not that you have a find of this hood and then you just sort of take that as freedom to carte blanche, make a hood however you want it to look as long as the corners look like the same as the corner scraps that are left. It's supported by a large amount of previously done experimental archaeology, knowledge, research, and you're going into it by being able to support this supposition that you're making with a ton of other really concrete and well-researched and thought out data points. And that's a hard thing on a new react, uh, reenactor is if you don't have all the same data points, it's easy to not know why you can't make a certain type of leather hood even though you go, oh, but in Poland, there's a leather hood. And if you haven't done the research into seeing what the scraps are and you don't really understand what the the other details surrounding the find are and you you have no real bearing on that or a good sense of the socioeconomic divide between the nobility and the commonry and an, and an idea of how the different types of roles and activities of different people in the medieval era might have put them in a position to have wanted to make this item. And I mean, the list goes on. There's a lot of research that goes into making either a really good or really bad conjecture. And by making a good conjecture, you're doing so not in isolation. And that that's where people get hemmed up is that they make this decision and they feel comfortable with it because they lack a whole lot of resources. And, and that's where you start to get people who get defensive because you're kind of, you do sometimes if you don't have that conversation in the most genial of, of ways and you don't do so with respect to the person you're talking to can sometimes come off as challenging them as not having enough. They're not good enough to have made this guess, you know, mm. and that's why it's very hazardous to start a impression or start bringing something into your impression that has very few sources 
without having a whole lot of other reasons to bring that into your living history impression. And it, it can be very challenging, too, especially when you're working with other reenactors, because we sort of have this, I don't want to say code in reenacting, but it's, it's understanding reenacting that we tend to reenact the common denominator of, of, of information. We tend not to try to get out there and do crazy off the wall, one off things because we don't have the information to back up, you know, a lot of those. So what we do is we, we tend to stay in the realms that we have lots of information for because that way we know, especially if we're teaching to the public or schools or something, we know that we're giving them correct information. When you start getting into these you know, sort of esoteric historical finds and things and one-offs, the water's the water gets a little murky, and it can be hard to to defend your choices because we just don't have the information. And I, and I don't mean defend as in you know somebody getting mad at you and you're defending yourself. It, it's you know defend as in a debate defend or a thesis defense of you know this is my idea, this is why I did it. Without all that information to back it up, it, it can get very very, very frustrating, um, especially because people will ask you, well, why are you why are you wearing that hood if you know if you don't know if your portrayal would have had anything like that? And you're like, well, I don't. But I think it's, I think that's where honesty and just being honest of what you know and what you know you don't know comes in. Right. And defining your purpose, because you make a good a good differentiation between impressions we bring to the public. I feel like I have the responsibility to make sure that an impression I bring to the public is portraying the rule, not the exception, because if they spend 15 minutes with me and they've interacted with the exception to the rule, they're going to walk away with the entirety of the data set in their mind being this exception. And it's going to feel more like the rule to them. And it's important to play around with the outliers in a let's say safer environment which is with other people who you can have those granular nuanced conversations with so there's lots of going back to experimental archaeology internal unit events and activities where everyone understands why you're going into this activity with so little information but when you bring it to the public or you bring it to the community at large it you know, it can come under a certain level of scrutiny because a lot of people do go to public events and a lot of people do come, especially newer reenactors who just don't know better with very little supporting evidence and very little supporting knowledge to actually pull that small amount of evidence off. And you have to remember how fast mis misinformation travels faster than, you know, Actual information. So much harder to bust a myth than it is to prove a fact. We're in 2021 now, and we still have to tell people that, no, knights were not lifted onto horses with cranes. Yeah. They, they were not. <laughs> so it's All someone like, has to do is watch one old movie, and then you have to spend the rest of your living history career fighting that factoid. You know, what is it? There's nothing, nothing more accurate than friendly fire, right? And there's nothing. Yeah. It's something about it. Just. I guess the thing is that it it's the endowment effect. Once someone thinks they know something, it's a more valuable piece of information than a fact that is designed 
to debunk that. And once someone believes they have something, you have to you have a higher bar to cross over before you can convince them that what they know is wrong, because what they know are facts that belong to them. And we subconsciously ascribe more value to things that belong to us. And it's just very difficult to eradicate these things. And we don't want to be part of creating more myths than we can debunk. And a lot of these people that we're talking to, either the public or schools and everything, you know, they're not knee deep or actually probably more like neck deep into <laughs> learning these things. So it, it's, it's, you know, we, as we read more and learn more, we, we get the understanding of how little we actually know. And if you're not constantly, you know, taking in more information about it, like we are, when you learn one thing, you're like, oh, I know that. So it, it's, yeah, it's that challenging. And I, I think talking about the movies, the old movies and everything actually goes into sort of the next justification. Mm-hmm. The story based and, justification. Yeah. When you're, when you're doing, when storytelling is how you make it so that it's okay to have a thing, even though all other evidence points to that thing not being appropriate. And there's an umbrella of different ways that these kinds of stories get told. Now, these are these type of stories are really prevalent in a lot of historical and fantasy LARPs because those are story driven. You know, you we're talking about the stories of like, you know, I I inherited my great grandfather's sword that saw him through the Crusades. You know, that that probably did not happen if it ever happened actually in historical times it would have been a very very rare event and even if you did inherit it there's that doesn't automatically mean that you would have taken it into battle with you because people put things up on the wall for decoration it's like saying that i'm going to take my granddad's garand with me to iraq next time i deploy like just because (laughs) i own it doesn't mean I use it in contemporary warfare. Exactly. And that, and that goes for a number of things. I mean, yes, some people do use the antiques because they, they like using them, but we're at a time in history where we have the luxury of being able to explore using the antiques, like, like, like an antique egg beater. Okay. We, it, I know people who have them and use them, and they they think they're wonderful and great. On the whole, though, people don't use antique egg beaters anymore to make scrambled eggs. They or or to bake with. They use electric egg beaters or electric beaters. Why? Because that's the technology we now have and that we can use. It's actually sort of a luxury to be able to have the time use an antique egg beater for fun so you so say like you know we have you know an antique egg beater from the 1800s and we're going to bake a cake today for dessert for dinner unless we really have the time to to dig out the antique egg beater and use it we're going to use the electric one the current technology what we have so it's the same there's the same thing for medieval times they didn't they didn't hold on to these antique technologies 
and use them just because they already had them. You know, technology adapted and changed. You know, you can make the argument like, well, my, my family's a peasantry, so we didn't have the money to buy these new things. Like, yeah, that's, that's, you're still getting a little muddy there, you know. Why, Especially why? since the endurance of things made in the, you know, in prehistory or not prehistory, but like pre-industrial age, things wore out. It wasn't a question of, oh, I'm going to keep using this because I'm poor and don't want to buy a new one. It's you acquire new ones because they wear out. You have low grade iron and you don't have high grade steel. You have things that aren't lacquered or protected with epoxy. So the wood rots out. You, know, you had to replace these tools because they wore out. And when they're worn out, you're not going to buy an antique. You're going to do everything you can to get a new one so it'll last longer so that it will work better. And there's just not as much turnover and hold on. I don't think there was an antiquing market in the 14th century quite like you can get in a downtown small USA. And a lot of the times I see this justification used because people find something that they think is really cool and they just want to use it. And, and that's awesome. Just use it. You don't need to come up with an, with an elaborate backstory to use it. I, I know somebody who once had a really cool, like a Roman ear spoon. But they were portraying 14th century man at arms. And he's like, well, I'm going to say that it, it was passed down through generations. It's like, so you have a thousand year, almost a thousand year old ear spoon artifact, yeah. artifact that you're using to clean your ears in the 14th like, century. At some point, if I found my hands on something that was 200 years old, I'd put it in a display case and never <laughs> touch it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and just because they, you know, even if something's been passed down, my my wife inherited an old house up here in Maine, and when she inherited it, it was full of stuff, uh, most of it junk, but <laughs> that's that's another story. But there were some antiques in it, and to be perfectly honest, there are some antiques that we've pulled out where I look at it and I go, I have no idea what that thing is or what it does. So just because things are passed down through the family, or just not even passed down, but kept you know, and then sort of hang on. It doesn't mean that people then would have actually even known, you know, somebody in the 14th century may have looked at a Roman ear spoon and said, I have no idea what that thing is or what it does. It would have been a completely foreign object to them because the technologies had changed so much. Sure, And skills and technologies came and went over the course of millennia. I mean, that's kind of the idea behind the Renaissance was that we, as a Western society, rediscovered a bunch of classical era stuff that had been completely forgotten about. I mean, look at just recently, there was an article that came out that there's what, 500 German fairy or fairy tales that were locked in a closet for 150 years. Yeah. You know, at what point would you say, you know, if someone read one of those fairy tales, be like, well, clearly my ancestors knew this tale. Well, no, they clearly didn't. Maybe 200 years ago, they might have. But these things get lost and rediscovered just in the way that we are rediscovering skills as a hobby. And what happens sometimes is people will look at the heirloom idea and it goes back to that idea of extreme or excessive extrapolation. You know, you look at, you know, when I'm looking at a narrow time frame, you see variation in things such as the length of the bassinet in comparison to the jawline of English helms in the turn of the 15th century. And yeah, as the bassinet starts to cover more of the face, 
maybe there were guys from one generation before that are using a 15-year-old style of helm because they prefer the cheeks of the bassinet to be farther away from their face because that's what they're used to because that's what they grew up with. But that doesn't mean that they're wearing a Norman-style nasal bassinet because it was something that they were used to from a, you know, this is what my grandma, grandpa wore, so I wore it too. It's it's taking something that is legitimate, some little variations and overlaps in technology that are usually a generation long, and trying to create multiple decades or even centuries out of it where the justification then breaks back down. Yeah. Now, story-based justification can work on some things sometimes if you have the evidence to back up that that what's happening in the story was actually done. Like, so if you, this would actually be really cool to see. I've never seen anybody do this. It'd be, it'd be fun to see. Say you were portraying a, not pauper, but you know, a, a, a lower tier, you know, of the, of the middle class, of the yeomanry, from just above a peasant, we'll say, but you have some disposable income. We know that the you there was a used clothing market in medieval Europe and and England, so they would actually, you know, um, nobles and and the the upper tier of the yeomanry, the middle class basically, would get rid of their used clothes, and merchants would take them and then sell them to people with less money. So, you know, if if you had a sort of out of style, sort of not ratty, but, but, you know, less than perfect Charles Dubois, you know, Dupont from, uh, you know, in, it's like 1407, right? And you could, you're portraying one of the, you could say, you know, oh, I bought it. I bought this out of used clothes place because I thought it was a fancy thing and I, and I, I needed a new, I needed a new coat, basically. So that's, that's a story. That's actually a very plausible story one because we know and we have the evidence that these things were done. Sure. But at the same point, you wouldn't probably have an Alexander style coat or D last into 1407, yeah. even on the resale market. And that's when, that's when a justification goes from being a good reason to a bad excuse is mm-hmm. when you hyper exaggerate something that is plausible in a better context. One of those other storytelling things that we run into a lot is when someone said that they're a trader or a merchant, and that's why they have something that is completely outside of the scope of what their culture would customarily have and integrate it into their impression because, you know, they got it on the Silk Road or something like that. And we don't see a lot of evidence of people doing things where they take someone else's cultural artifact and use it as part of their everyday wardrobe. We tend to see other people's cultural styles integrate into the culture over time as a whole and not in whole jumps into individual people's attire. Exactly. And that can be, you know, that integration is slow. It's like suddenly they have a new fabric and they're making, they're still making the same style of clothes that everybody else wore but it's out of this new fabric. And it might not be like, you know, garish and, and totally foreign colors that they're using. It's just the new fabric itself. And then over time, they add more and more things to it. 
I've seen, I've heard the merchant tale used for any, any number of different justifications. A lot of the times, again, if you're doing it for the truly historical portion of it, th- those justifications just don't work, especially for things because it's like, so if, if you're a 14th century English wine merchant, right? And you happen to have gone to, you know, Italy for some reason. And I mean, it's not outlandish. There was wine in Italy. So but you've gone to Italy and you've met up with somebody from the Silk Road, right? And you found a, something from them, you know, like, like a hat. Okay. And you thought the hat was neat. So you bought the hat off of them and you brought it home. That doesn't mean you're going to go around wearing the hat all the time because it's, it's going to be like, it, it's an oddity. It's a curiosity. It, it may not, if you wear it out in public, it may not even register as a hat to most people because it's so foreign to them and foreign to the styles that they're, they're used to. And it, there's a chance, especially when you're doing that, of being rejected by the society that supports and protects you. True, because it's very cliquish. And the medieval culture was cliquish. And part of, part of that was identifying with your tribe, so to speak, your country, your, your region. And the way people use material wealth to signify that could be really off-putting if you're wearing the enemy's fashion. Exactly. So is even more so the farther back you go in time, you know, you don't want to be in your society the outsider. You don't want to be the weird one because weird ones bring bad things and then weird ones get ostracized, you know, for the betterment of the society. Now, it, it still happens to in the modern times to an extent. We've become a little better about it, but it still happens. So if that's an actually easy, it doesn't mean that happen to the extreme of your village is going to, you know, burn you at the stake for being a witch. But, but if, still, if you're, yeah, if your place in society is strongly dependent on how well you've integrated into that society, doing something that marks you as an other is it's counter to your own well-being. And in some places, there were very strict societal stratas where if you tried to do something out of your strata, you could get in serious trouble. I it's just it's hard to say just because I would have had access to this, then I would wear it myself. And there's so many different ways that we can describe this from different angles. You know, your average diamond merchant today doesn't necessarily mean he can just pocket handfuls of diamonds because yeah. if they don't sell those diamonds, they don't eat. You know, the people who they merchant to are the ones who get to consume that item. The merchant themselves doesn't necessarily have the money to be a consumer of the things they sell. There's plenty of people, even, you know, there's plenty of servers at a restaurant who can't afford the meal that they're handing you if they were to sit down and eat it, much less a silk merchant who's delivering the only bolt of a particular fabric that will be found in their entire country, they're not going to have a shirt of it themselves. So it's just not, once you, you spend some time thinking about it, it's not the best reason to use something that you wouldn't otherwise have worn. And one more thought on merchants while we're here talking about merchants. This isn't so much the portrayal of a merchant, but actually buying something from a merchant. Unless you know 
that the thing you're buying from someone is historically accurate to your portrayal, or you know that that merchant is highly trusted within the community, don't necessarily trust that the merchant fully knows what he's selling is actually accurate to your portrayal. Because one, the merchant might not actually know what your portrayal is. You know, two, they might just be trying to sell you the object. And because that's what they do, merchants, they sell things. Don't trust them to do your research for you. Yeah. Now, one of the things we talked about prior to, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, actually, is you're talking about a wax tablet in the hands of like an archer. Why would they have necessarily a wax tablet? And, and you told me about how you had this idea of, well, that archer might have been handed the wax tablet by the whatever equivalent in, you know, are you in France, are you in Germany, are you in England? By a like their quartermaster and told, okay, I need you to mark down and record the sheaves of arrows on the wagon for me. And so now you have this impression in camp where it makes sense for this guy to have this wax tablet with him, even if he's not a merchant class. He's not the actual important guy and who's taking the records and making and making the final entries into the rolls and scrolls. But when that that would be a wonderful reason for a specific an interesting impression, but that impression doesn't carry over to the battlefield. There's no reason for him to still be wearing or carrying that wax tablet on the field when he's in his helmet and hauberk and he's got his bows and, and, and arrows and ready for to go. Like he wouldn't, he would have relinquished that special use item for a field impression of the same guy. But if you were to try and extend and stretch that reason, to say, oh, well, I'm just going to carry it on me because I would keep all my stuff with me. Well, I mean, we already know that people would throw bags of their stuff on a wagon during battle and hope that it was there when they got back. And so it doesn't stand up if you try and carry it too far. And that's where I find that it becomes storytelling instead of creating an impression. It's like the idea of you know medieval cargo shorts, basically. <laughs> I'll explain. <laughs> So basically, you know, we modern people, when we leave the house and we're wearing cargo shorts, we'll have wallet, phone, keys, maybe sunglasses, maybe headphones for your phone if you need them. You know, we'll pack ourselves with all this stuff that we we might, you know, it, we might not use the headphones. We might not need our keys. Well, the most time we need our keys, but I mean, we might not need, you know, the the our cell phone really. All these sorts of things. We might take a book, put a book or something in your in your pocket, you know, stuff like that, stuff that we may not need. And I see people do these sort of challenges where they're like, "What's in your pouch?" And you'll open up your pouch, and they'll have, you know, a patenoster and a wax tablet and some coinage and some, you know, all this stuff. And it's basically it's like they're they're unloading their cargo shorts of all these things. It's like the kitchen uh, sink. The kitchen sink, exactly. <laughs> Um, it reminds you of like, you know, the Bugs Bunny or something where you just start pulling stuff out of his pockets. But when, when you really start to get more focused on some of these things, you know, probably the archer wouldn't have his, you know, patenoster and his wax tablet and his, you know, all this stuff in his pouch out there on the field. He might not even have the pouch on him on the field. That's true. And I guess there's there's a modern corollary in that, and there's only so much we can use modern experiences to say that a medieval person would have acted this way. But having been the type of person who has 
had to go from sitting at a desk in the office and hanging around the barracks to I'm going to go and see whether or not I have to get in a fight that I may or may not live through. There's a lot of stuff you don't take after you do that once or twice. And as a patrolman, even after getting out of the army, even as a patrolman, there's a lot of stuff that I put in when I was working on patrol in the patrol car, but I didn't keep it on my person because there's a point at which stuff becomes a detriment. And I don't want to be, you know, it's hard enough to run with my duty belt on and yeah. my armor on that. Plus all, you know, I don't need a bunch of junk in my pockets. I half the time, if I don't need it, you don't even take your cell phone out of the car. You just, you go as light as you can. You've got a radio. It works a lot quicker than the, the cell phone. And so there's a lot of things that we carry because we've never actually, we've gone to tournaments and things, sure, but we've never started and ended a life or death situation ourselves. And there's a lot of things that you don't realize you don't need until you've done something like that. And that's where we see, that's where I feel like we have this disconnect because it's a, an experience that most people don't have. And honestly, I'm going to point it out there. Most people shouldn't have. Like, I don't no. want you, if you do a martial impression, I don't think you should go and put yourself in some sort of harm's way to have a more authentic martial impression. Uh, there's people who will sign up to do the things that, you know, police and soldiers have done. And a lot of us do that so that most other people don't have to. So I'm not trying to encourage. I really don't want to encourage people to, like, start their own fight clubs so that they can do a better martial impression. Hey, you know, sparring tournaments are good. But there's just so much that we carry that we don't necessarily need. And I think that's where a lot of that comes from. And that one's not even really a bad justification. That one's just a, a lack of experience. And that's you know, that's almost more forgivable than a bad justification, really. But I think a lot of it stems from, which, which goes into the next point, is we just want to show off the cool stuff we have. The and rule I, of cool. The rule of cool. It's like, and, I, and I totally get that, man. I, I have so much cool stuff. I, I I have a need. I have a need to show this stuff <laughs> off. So, and, and that's great. But remember, so the, so the next point we're going to make is, I saw him do it, and it's cool. This is talking about using other reenactors as source material. And while other reenactors are a great jumping-off point, to see impressions that, that you know you might want to base your base your impression off of. A lot of reenactors, and this is coming from somebody who for years idolized, and I still idolize a lot of reenactors, but really I idolize the whole idea of living history and reenactors. A lot of reenactors are wrong. Sure, and because a lot of reenactors are in different stages of their journey. They are. So even some of the ones we look at, they're like, that kid is gorgeous. That is the most gorgeous thing I've ever song. seen. Seen. Sorry. <laughs> I've ever seen. You know, it's, it might not be actually correct. It doesn't make it less cool. It doesn't make it less impressive. It just might not be correct. It's like one of the big things I've seen now in sort of the SCA, um, and uh Bohurt Worlds right now is there's a company that makes absolutely gorgeous um gambeson. And they will block print what 
whatever design you want on, on these gambits. So all of a sudden I'm seeing all these absolutely gorgeous, and they are gorgeous, gambesons all over the fields with custom block printing done on it. And people are saying, oh, well, I saw this, this, group, this group doing it, and they've done it, so you know, it's got to be right. It's, gotta, it's so cool. But yeah, it is really cool. We don't have a lot of evidence for these things ever really existing. They're just, they're pretty. So if if you're going for just pretty and medieval-esque and showing off kind of things, then go for it. I fully recommend go for it because they look amazing. If you're actually going for the I want to portray somebody for history, from history, then don't copy what you're seeing. Actually go to the sources, go to the actual artwork, and see what's being done. Use the sources the way they're supposed to be used instead of taking the shortcut and looking at the reenactors. Right, because the reenactor is not a source. And here you go back to this idea that if someone's asking for the source of what you're doing, it it very well may not be because they're challenging you on your decisions. It might be that they're admiring what you've put together and they want to emulate your impression or understand how you got to the point where you put something together that they really admire. And it all goes back to the sources because we should generate our impressions from the source and not from each other's impressions. Because that's, as you said, how the rule of cool and, and some of these, what I will talk about reenactorisms in a completely different episode. That's something that they, we can definitely talk about on its own, just reenactorisms, yeah. but that's how they, that's how they tend to perpetuate is when people, like you said, take a shortcut and go, well, you know, if someone else did it, then it's probably true. They're trustworthy. They have a valid impression. Then I don't have to look any deeper. Well, I've been wrong a number of times. That's how I learned. You can't learn from a mistake if you don't know it's there and you can't learn from something if you don't try it. And when you try it, you're going to make a mistake. And so there's also the, the idea of sort of the, the degrading quality of copies. Have you ever been to a copy machine and you're making a copy and then you make a copy of the copy and you make a copy of that copy and make a copy of that, you know, it's it, after a while that copy gets, you know, you can't read it anymore because it's so faded and distorted and different that it's absolutely nothing like what the original thing you copied was. And and that's something I've seen, like, one of the big things in the SCA is once you get your coat of arms registered, is to put it on everything. Yeah. Put, it on a, put it on your clothes, put it on hat, put it on your chest so they know it's your chest, put it on your shield, put it on your sword, put it on everything, put it on your underwear, because they say, oh, this is, they use this so people knew what belonged to them. It's like, well, no, not not really. It was a signifier of who a person was, but they didn't go around tagging everything with their coat of arms. Tattooing it on their forehead. Tattooing it on their forehead, you know, and I'm not trying to stop people from using their coat of arms because a lot of them are absolutely gorgeous coat of arms and they're proud of them as they should be and they want to show them off. It's like, go for it. Do that. But this goes back to what I said originally. Let's be honest as to why you're doing it and to what the actual use of these items were. That's a good point. And that requires going back to the sources, which the more sources you have and the more you adhere to the sources, the less you feel inclined to make some of these really bad 
or, you know, unacademically honest, intentionally or not, justifications for things. I think uninformed is, is a good word because they're not, they're not b- bad makes it sound like it's a, it's a, you're consciously saying, I just think it's cool. I don't care. And, uh, and I, mean, I don't know, even that's not that bad sometimes. It's as long as you're honest about it. It's, it's, there's a level of, of just being informed and a lot, and you know, informed choices, I guess, are, is the, is the phrase I'm looking for. The, the more informed you are on something, then the more, you know, the less you have to stretch the justification for doing it. That's a really good point. And I think we can end on, on that high note. You really summed it up well here for us. And I hope that this gives someone who, is looking at all of this information that they have ahead of them and don't know what to parse out a little more guidance into what it is that they need to look at to come up with a better impression. Cause that's, I know what our, our everyone's main goal is. I, I have faith that the majority of the people are making uninformed, honest gaffes and that there are very, very few people who are willfully diluting our historical accuracy for whatever mischievous or malevolent means. And always remember, never be afraid to ask questions. We're we're all, even the best of us and the most experienced of us, we're always learning something and we're always learning something new. and We're always making tweaks and changes to what we do to better fit the information we have. And just because you need to ask a question doesn't mean you're dumb, doesn't mean you're bothering people. Most of us, I will you know, drop whatever I'm doing to help somebody answer a question if I can at that time. So never be afraid to ask questions. We're all here to help each other to make this make this a better experience for, for everyone. And if at any time you're uncomfortable with asking somebody else a question, go ahead and ask us. You can get us on Facebook. You can find us by our email, howtomedieval at gmail.com, and we'll answer your question or we'll talk to the person for you. We're not scared of anybody else, and we're here. We're on your side. We are. So if you don't think that it's okay to carry the battle weapons of your fallen enemies as legitimate reasons for arming yourself with odd things, you should give us five stars on wherever you're listening to us. Go over to Facebook, go over to Spotify or whatever podcast engine you're listening to us on. The five stars definitely helps us get out there, get better exposure, have people who need to hear us find us. Thank you for listening. Bye, guys.